0: you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 20, and this evening we'll read the entirety of the second table of the law, which you'll find beginning there at verse 12. That's Exodus chapter 20 and starting at the 12th verse. Beloved, hear once again the inerrant, the infallible, the holy word of the living God. Honor thy father and thy mother, and that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his as ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. Amen. May the Lord bless to us his word this evening. Beloved, before we take up this text, uh, if you'll permit me to do something I wouldn't normally do and make something of a disclaimer. I, I think as we've come to the law, uh, these past several nights. I trust you understand that I've, I've sought really to do that work, which is my duty to do, and that is to lift up the Word of God and, and to open it and to apply it. Uh, that I've not, I've not become, as it were, some kind of social commentator. I've, I've not striven really to be an inflammatory um, observer uh, of what we see around us. The aim in our time as we think about the law of God I trust, has been primarily just to see what the Word of God shows us is is true duty for all mankind and and for us to understand clearly our own sin and also to give us, as we come before God in prayer, a clear idea of what we're to be asking the Lord to do in us. I think when we come to the seventh commandment, though, that disclaimer is necessary. I, I think... For most of us, it's quite clear that the issues that we're taking up tonight are broadcast very, very broadly throughout these, throughout these lands. Everybody's talking about the themes we're taking up this evening. And my goal is not to become a social pundit this evening. My goal is, is not to be inflammatory. My goal is still to set before you the word of God. Um, But beloved, I think it is right for us as we think about this particular commandment and what is in the headlines of the news today uh, to see these things in a biblical light. And so perhaps more so than I have in the past, I, I will be drawing attention to some of those themes, themes that you and I are acquainted with wherever we go in the world around us. So with that disclaimer in view, we take up here this evening just the 14th verse. Thou shalt not commit adultery. And, beloved, as you look at this text, it's quite clear um, that it's invoking for us an idea that that is broader than I think the rest of the world recognizes. What do I mean? Well, the word adultery in the Scripture certainly carries with it broader meaning than often often we employ it. Often when we use the word, we think of it in its narrowest sense. That is, physical intimacy with another spouse. But as you quickly glance through the scriptures, you'll notice that the Bible makes use of this word and the idea of adultery in a far broader sense as well. Take just for a moment Matthew 5.28. Whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery already with her in his heart. I want you to notice what Christ tells us there. He doesn't say that it's like he committed adultery with her. But before the searcher of hearts, Christ says, the man has in fact committed adultery with her in his heart. That is in the divine reckoning, before the bar of heaven, this this lust that's described is actually violation of the seventh commandment. And we can go elsewhere as well. The scriptures speak of adulterous eyes. Eyes that are wandering. And so the scriptures have behind this whole idea, adultery in a broader sense than often what I think the world thinks. It it encompasses the whole man. His eyes, his heart, everything about the man is in view in this text. And so this evening, our, our, our theme is quite straightforward. Seeing that all, all of man is involved in this text. Well, friend, we have the command then reminding us that we must be chaste in all things. We must be chaste in all things. And I want us to consider that as we have now for the past several months as we've come to each command, looking first of all at the essence of the command itself, then looking at the equity of it, and then finally examples of its exercise. So take first of all the essence of the command. What exactly is it commanding of us? And, friend, as I've already alluded to you, the text is quite clear. The law itself is quite clear in in conjunction with the other scriptures just briefly mentioned that man's inclinations, his thoughts, and his behaviors are in view. In other words, we're not looking here purely at something that is visible, something that is external. Here, the law pertains to the whole man in every regard. And friend, this evening, the first observation that really puts us in contact with the world around us is how this law prescribes for us proper inclinations, chaste inclinations. I I begin here, friend, because this is precisely where the world does. And this is precisely where the division between biblical ethics and the ethics that are now propounded throughout the world in our schools, the workplace, and social media are really at variance. You see, we live in a society, friend, that would argue genuinely that inclinations are morally infallible. We live in a world where we are told that feelings cannot be wrong. But what do the scriptures say, and how does that relate to this command before us? Let me, let me read to you a text that, that I know is well known to you. But, but see how that bears on this particular idea. God gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their hearts. Vile affections. Knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. Of course, I'm reading from Romans 1. What does the apostle say there? What's striking is the Apostle goes directly to the heart of the matter. He doesn't deal purely with things that are external or physical. He goes not even just to thoughts, but he goes to affections. And he says that affections, these ones are vile. In other words, friend, the the Bible's quite clear. There is such a thing as a vile affection. There is such a thing as a wicked inclination. And so the Bible in one voice, and we could go right throughout the scriptures, of course, you know that. But with one voice, the Bible screams that affections can be wrong. That feelings are no infallible guide when it comes to morality. Friend, I want you to think about that just for a moment and and see how, how this relates to the seventh commandment. The seventh commandment comes to us and says, as it does, as the law of God does in every other respect, but, but see how in the seventh commandment it comes to man and it reminds man that God is sovereign over your inclinations. He's sovereign over your affections. You know, beloved, as you look at Romans 1, uh, just the text that I read to you there, he says that these affections that are contrary to the law of God, he says says they're vile, they're unnatural. And you and I know that he's dealing here particularly with sodomy, but but as we look at the seventh commandment requiring chastity on every level, it's important for us to remember that, that what the apostle says here about those inclinations specifically, can certainly be applied to every violation of the 7th commandment. Every inclination to uncleanness. Every inclination of whatever sort. Every inclination is unnatural because, says the scriptures again in one voice, man was made to function physically and spiritually only as God had ordained him to do so under his institutions. And so, friend, it's not only the sodomite and sodomite inclinations that are unnatural. But, friend, the fornicator, the adulterer, the person strapped in lust, all of those you and I are supposed to see, though on a spectrum, are nonetheless unnatural. It's not how man is supposed to be. And the scriptures are clear that in his very inclinations, in his very affections, man can become unnatural. Why is, this, why is this unnatural, friend? First of all, and just very briefly, this reminds us, beloved, that the law of God prescribes that man's heart runs in the same channel as his law in all things. I esteem, says the psalmist, all thy precepts concerning all things to be right. He says, whatever, whatever my inclinations may be, whatever my feelings may tell me, it is your law that I judge to be right in all things. Friend, what does that say to the adulterous heart? To the one who is coveting another man's wife. To the other person strapped again with lust of any sort. How does that compare with the psalmist's disposition? You see ultimately those unclean inclinations. Would hold their own. Their own. Sorry their own affections as infallible. Over the law and rule of God where where the psalmist has been taught by grace to say truly, he from the heart believes God's word, his law is just in all things. This means then also, friend, that he is a man imbued with contentment. Friend, the adulterous mind and heart cannot do as God commands him to rejoice with the wife of his youth. The person who, again, is given over to any kind of uncleanness in their inclinations is here really complaining against the God of providence who has placed them in whatever place they have, whatever he has, and without the thing that they are so, they're so lusting after. You see what this text does, friend, is it reminds us that the Lord God comes to a culture such as ours and says that our inclinations... Our inclinations are not benign. They're not immoral. They too are bound by the law of God. And they are only good if they run through that channel. The second thing that this text holds out to us, of course, is also as we've seen from Matthew 5, that this law prescribes all unclean thoughts. Whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery already with her in his heart. Again, Christ is very clear. It is a violation of the seventh commandment to have lustful thoughts. And we can go further, friend. And and this evening, my aim is not to be encyclopedic. We we simply don't have time. But, But of course, then, when we come to behaviors, this command prescribes all unclean behaviors of whatever sort. Obviously, those that are clearly physical are obviously prescribed. I don't need to rehearse any of those things to you. You know that as well as I, but but can I go maybe perhaps a step further? What else does this law say about our behaviors? The command also of necessity prohibits promiscuous attire for men or women, by the way. The Lord says in his word, Proverbs 7, that there is such an attire that belongs to the harlot. And those who are the Lord's covenanted people are not to adorn it. And friend, I, I won't descend into specifics, again, largely because of time and, and largely because the foundation is so clear. But when we're talking about promiscuous attire, what really are we meaning here? Well, friend, I think, I think the best way for me to, to lay before you a, a basic principle with regard to that is, is just through three questions and this is perhaps controversial in the broader world, but for a Christian, these three questions are fundamental, not just for attire, but really for all of life. Whenever we're putting on our clothes, the first question we should ask is, why am I doing it? Why these particular articles of clothing? The second question we have to ask is, have I thought at all of others? Have I given any thought about how this will be received by anyone? And then thirdly, do I have enough humility that if a trusted friend comes to me and says, "I think that one that article of clothing would cause somebody to stumble," would I be humble enough to change? Now, friend, I, I've not said anything specific this evening, but I would say to you that those three basic questions are really, really clear. They, they set before us a clear idea of what really lays wise behind Christians as they think about their attire. But, but not only does it prescribe promiscuous attire, it also comes to us and reminds us that we are to avoid every occasion of, of promiscuity. The scriptures tell us very plainly that the lips of a strange woman drop as a honey, honeycomb. That is, it's very clear there is a danger here. But then notice what he says here. Therefore, remove thy way far from her, and come not nigh the door of her house. Because promiscuity is of such an intoxicating character, the Christian and all of mankind is supposed to to avoid such occasions as though it were the plague. In other words, friend, this, this command does not allow for that kind of boldness in self. It urges men and women to run away from such occasions. Not to think of themselves stronger than they actually are. But also, friend, there's the appearance of evil, of course, that's in view in this as well. You and I, we are to abstain from all appearance of uncleanness. All appearance of uncleanness. If one could reasonably deduce that what we are doing is unclean. If it would be reasonable for them to do so, friend, then this command requires us to abstain from it. So as we look at this text, friend, I imagine for most of us, it proscribes things that we see in the world around us, yes, but but things that, of course, we, we don't find so much in ourselves. But... As I'm not, I'm not preaching to Stormont this evening. I'm not preaching in Westminster or Edinburgh or anything like that. As I'm speaking to a congregation uh, who I know, uh, to, to those who professed, that they, they hold, hold to, to maintaining a faithful testimony of Christ in a declining age. I would submit to you that the seventh commandment still offers us a challenge. You see, we may not be a people inclined to the kinds of uncleannesses that we see around us. But we need to be very clear that that contagion manifests itself among us in a different way. Just for a moment, note how, the apostle, note how the psalmist describes himself. He says, rivers of water run down mine eyes, because they that is sinners keep not thy law. You see, friend, even if even if the outrages of uncleanness that we see around us today are not found among us, Can we say that we are still sensitive, still mindful of the shock value those things should have with us? Or have those things become normal to us too? Have we lost a sense of the grief that we're supposed to have when we see these things enacted? Oh friend, I know that we talk about these things and and we share them and we shake our heads as we talk about these, these, uh, these atrocities. But can we say, as the psalmist does, that when we think about these things, rivers of water run from our eyes. Beloved, if we can't say that, make no mistake, that contagion is found in us. We partake of the spirit of our generation. But how do we maintain that? How, how do we come to a point where, where these things grieve us as they ought to? A oh friend, of course, that is the work of divine grace alone. But the Lord will use will use His Word to cause us to see the sinfulness of sin, and that leads us to the equity of this law. Our second point this evening, it leads us to see the reasonableness of this command, and I want us to consider that as the Scriptures present it to us. I want us to consider that first of all, man and his natural state, man as a creature. Possessed of the image of God, how this law is consonant with that identity. And then I want us to think secondly about how this law certainly agrees with the new nature that the Christian has in Christ. So take first of all, man naturally considered, considered as a creature. When the apostle is dealing with this, I want you to notice it's striking. He comes to man. And he says the body is not for fornication. Now friend, we read over that very quickly, but I want you to notice what he's saying. He's saying it was never created for fornication. He was saying that from the very garden, man was not endowed with a body for uncleanness. That is in its very constitution, in its very intention, man made in the image of God was given a body, as he says here, for the Lord. That's man in the garden. And friend, as we've said to you, as I've said to you several times now, that has vast implications. Vast implications. And the apostle teases them out for us. He says just a few verses later, he says, Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body. But he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. He's saying, Look, the body was never made for uncleanness, but when you devote it to such an end, It's like you are taking, it's like you're taking a valuable tool and you're breaking it through its misuse. It would be like a king taking his ambassador and making that ambassador in front of the onlooking world do some menial task. And you see, friend, in doing so, that only casts dishonor upon the king who sent him. That's the idea behind this text. He's saying when men devote themselves, when they devote themselves either physically or would devote themselves by their desires and inclinations to such uncleanness. Well, friend, they're not functioning. They're not just functioning impurely, they're functioning contrary to the very constitution of their human nature. As creatures made imago die, image of God. What do I mean? Friend, when you and I see, as we see around us, just uncleanness on every corner, you and I, according to these texts, are supposed to see that that's not humanity. Those are men who are becoming beasts. I, I think I think we've lost this, and and this would take so much more time, really, really, to make it clear. But. But friend, the apostle is saying that when when you see this kind of thing, it's not just that these ones have that these ones, as it were, have violated a moral code, though of course they have. They have become somehow in an immoral sense less human, more like the lesser creatures than like those made in the image of God. You see, friend, keeping that in front of us, I think, will help us immensely. Because the world will say that actually that kind of uncleanness is a mark of maturity. It's a mark of human freedom. The apostle says, it's not consonant with man's created constitution. Prior to my conversion, I listened to a particular song on repeat quite a lot. But after I was converted, I went back and I listened to it again as I learned more about the band. What I found so striking was the song actually was not, as I thought it was, an anthem of debauchery. It was actually satire. These these men who were not Christians looked at the sensualized world around them, and they critiqued it scathingly. These weren't Christians, but here's what they said. They said that it was obviously a mark of immaturity that such uncleanness now abounds. And those are pagans. These are people who would never profess faith in Christ, and they see that. They see that whenever we see around us what we do, men somehow become less like men. They become more like the creatures in the farm than anything. That's how the apostle deals with it. He says this kind of uncleanness makes men more like beasts. But that's man in general. That's man based upon his created constitution. What about what about the new creature? It's striking as you come again to First Corinthians 6, our scripture reading, how the apostle deals with this. He says, Your bodies are the members of Christ. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of an harlot? God forbid. Your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. Ye are not your own. Ye are bought with a price. Glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So striking, isn't it? What the apostle does—he—he he, he looks at man as he is created. He reminds us that man was created to to function cleanly and under the institutions God had established. But then he moves to a redemptive element. He comes to the new creation, and he says, "Christ has redeemed your bodies as well as your souls. He's purchased them, and therefore you are doubly obliged." To make sure that these are only employed in the most chaste of ways. It's a staggering argument, isn't it? He says you need to contemplate who owns you. You need to contemplate not only what it means to be a human created in the image of God. Yes, though, though that image is greatly obscured yet still present. You also need to contemplate what it means for you to be one who has been purchased by Christ. And inhabited, he says, by the Spirit of God. Friend, do you realize that your bodies have been purchased by the Lord? Yes, these, these, these compounds of dust. Christ also has them. Dominion over them as His purchase. And so says the Apostle, any inclination to devote them to any other purpose than that which is clean. Is a clear indication that that the soul has forgotten that these things are the Lord's, both by creation and through Christ's redemption. And so, friend, this command then so very clearly comes to us as the most equitable of commands. Does it not? Does does it not come to us reminding us that, that such uncleanness is beneath a creature? created a reasonable soul created in the image of God does it not come to us then as Christians reminding us that that such uncleanness certainly does not become those who have been purchased body and soul by Christ certainly friend it does come to us in such a way and so it reminds us as the word of God does in Proverbs 22 that it it must be a mark of divine judgment when such uncleanness abounds, both in the world and among professing Christians. The mouth of a strange woman is a deep pit. He that is aboard of the Lord shall fall therein. Know what, the, what Proverbs 22 tells us. It's a mark of divine judgment when men and women give themselves over to uncleanness. Friends, as we look at this text, just very briefly, surely we can see around us the effects of this judgment. Surely we can see that as men look at this particular command that is most equitable, that it's somehow restrictive, somehow keeping men from from, from being men and and somehow keeping humans from from their liberality. Surely we can see that, that the effects of that only prove that we are under judgment. What do I mean? Well, friend, just very briefly, surely if we think about it for more than a moment, there's a correlation between the increase, the increase of sensuality, the elevation of the lesser creatures, and the degradation of human life. Surely we can see that as men and women become more beastly, that therefore they begin to more highly value the lives of the lesser creatures than their own neighbors. Surely we can see the connection there. And beloved, that only reminds us, doesn't it, that that we are a people already, already under judgment. But I want us to close this evening Thirdly and finally, with the exercise of this law. It's perhaps no surprise to you that I would take you to Joseph. There you have a man who very clearly demonstrates all, really, of what we've said in a very single moment, a very simple single moment. Joseph, there with Potiphar's wife, cries. How shall I do this thing and sin against God? And he flees. There's so much in that text. But do you realize, friend, how how Joseph's answer actually reiterates everything that we've just said about man created in the image of God and about man redeemed. You see, he doesn't look at this sin as purely against Potiphar. Or to use the words of 1 Corinthians 6 as purely a sin against his own body he sees this as a sin against God and friend why would Joseph think that? well he would think that first of all of course because God who is creator has, has already in the law of nature told man that he is only only under the institution of marriage to seek such intimacy but can we not go further? Friend, Joseph was a man redeemed. He was a man redeemed who belonged to God by covenant through Christ. And so, friend, he sees himself under obligation to God, not at all, in any way to give in to uncleanness. Friend, there's a wonderful picture of a man who's very clear about his own identity, very clear about the law of God, very clear about God's callings upon him, body and soul. But perfectly, friend, when we think about this in its broadest aspect, when we think about how this law reminds us that the Lord is sovereign over our inclinations, our thoughts, and our behaviors. Surely when we think about this law as it calls man to say that God is, His law is the only channel through which my inclination should run. Surely when we think of it so, we see Christ there as the epitome, the perfect picture of conformity. I delight, he says. I delight to do thy will. Christ's body and soul was pleased to submit himself always to the law of God his inclinations, his thoughts, and his behaviors always squared to this. And So Christian, as we close this evening, the final illustration that we come to has to be that of the Corinthians themselves. What does it look like for Christians to take hold of what we've just thought about? the Apostle actually gives us a picture. After listing all of those sins of uncleanness, all of those who, who living in bondage to them are promised never to inherit the kingdom of heaven, he turns to the Corinthians and he says, such were some of you. Friend, I would encourage you to go back and read through that list. Encourage you to go back and read through all the kinds of uncleanness the Apostle mentions there, and then emphasize these words, and such were some of you. He's saying that there were those who were engaged in such things, things you wouldn't name even behind a pulpit, and yet they were redeemed. And then he says this, but ye are washed but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. He turns to the Corinthians and he says very clearly, but a change has occurred. A change has occurred and it's evident that that change has occurred because you are no longer unclean. You're washed. And he means that, friend. He means that in two ways as he explains. He means that in the sense that they are no longer enslaved to those things. And he means that because also they are justified before the bar of heaven. In the Lord Jesus Christ, all manner of uncleanness, as Zechariah 13.1 reminds us, all manner of uncleanness is cleansed in that fountain of Christ's own blood. Beloved, there you have a clear picture that our society needs to see and to hear. They need to hear that far, far from constricting humanity, this law actually shows us what normal humanity is. And it shows us also that only in the Lord Jesus Christ are men and women made normal. Only the one who is the perfect, the second Adam, is that image of God restored progressively and promised to be restored completely such that all manner of uncleanness dies and they are made more more into the likeness of Jesus Christ, the only normal, the only perfect man. Amen.